someone were to ask you tonight, what do you believe happens when you die? What would you say? If you were to search that on Google and pose that question, what happens to people when they die? You would be hit immediately with a slew of articles and answers, many of them based on the scientific knowledge of the medical community, which describes death this way. It's when the brain ceases to have activity and the body no longer responds to efforts to resuscitate it. That's what the medical experts would call the end. There's been some recent research done that suggests that 10 minutes or so after we die, the body continues to function a little bit and then we can be officially declared as dead. In James 2 and verse 26, James says the body without the spirit is dead. And again, the scientific community would agree with that and echo the words of the wise men in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7, where Solomon says, then this body returns back to the dust from which it came and the spirit returns to the God who gave it. But Christians would respond to that. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7 and say, oh, yes, the body returns back to the dust from which it came, but not for long. It's not just the scientific community that's tongue tied when we talk about what happens when we die, but also individuals in major world religions. Buddhists and Hindus and those that practice what we call Sikhism and Jainism all subscribe to some form of reincarnation. That is, when we die, they believe that you take on life in another living organism or living creature. And so you're human now, but in your next life, you'll be a cow. And in the next life, you'll be a bird or a fish. And this continues to happen until you reach this sort of zenith of ecstasy and you reach your full potential. And then you'll be all that you were meant to be. The three major world religions, Christianity, Judaism and Islam, all subscribe to some form of what we would call a bodily resurrection. But Christianity stands out as different than all of those religions based on this one reality. Christians believe in the resurrection of the dead because of what happened with Jesus Christ in his empty tomb. First Corinthians 15, 20 and 23 describes him as the first fruits of them which slept. That is to say that as Jesus rose from the dead because of that fact. We believe that one day we will rise from the grave as well. You know, when you think about the resurrection of the body, it is so important. It's so crucial to what the New Testament teaches about Christians and our view of the afterlife. But sometimes we can approach this with this sort of casual spirit that says, listen, I don't really care. I just want to be with the Lord where he is. I'm not really interested in what happens to me after death. Or maybe I believe I'm going to be a disembodied spirit and surely the soul will live on. But this body, it'll go back to the grave and that'll be all. But the Bible says otherwise. And if we believe that all scripture is given by God's inspiration and it all is profitable, then what the Bible says about your body and mine at the end of this life must matter to us a great deal. If you have your New Testament tonight, turn to first Corinthians chapter 15. This is not the only chapter in the New Testament that deals with the resurrection of the body. It just happens to be the most exhaustive one. And so in first Corinthians 15, in the first 11 verses, Paul strikes at this reality that Jesus was raised from the dead. And that is the gospel. And if we be pleasing to God, we have to believe that Jesus rose. And then in verses 12 down through verse 19, Paul says, if we forfeit our belief in the resurrection of the dead, then we're of all people to be most miserable and most pitied because we're living the Christian life in vain. If we believe that when we die, that's all that there is. But Paul says Christ has been raised. In verses 20 through 28, he says, one day Jesus will come back. Verse 24, deliver up the kingdom to God. Verses 25 through 27, he says, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Death will no longer be in charge and Christians will reign with the Lord. In verses 29 through 34, Paul says, because the resurrection is true, he and his companions have given their life over to preaching the gospel. Notice verse 33. 
Be not deceived. Evil companions, corrupt good morals, whoever these individuals were who had crept into the church at Corinth and started to teach them otherwise. Paul says they must be ignored. But more than that, they must be silenced because they're corrupting what God wanted the Corinthians to know. But in the last part of First Corinthians 15, which is what we're going to study tonight in verses 35 through 58, Paul doesn't just say that there's a resurrection. He talks in some detail about how it happens and what's going to happen to our bodies and what we need to know about it. Now, we can't know everything, but we can know some things. And from verse 35 through verse 58, Paul speaks in detail by inspiration about the resurrection of the body, not Jesus's resurrection, but yours and mine. It's not enough for us to read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and see that Jesus raised some people from the dead. He did. But we need more than that. It's not enough for us to say, well, Jesus rose from the dead and his tomb was empty. And that's great news. That's the gospel. We must believe it in order to be saved. But the New Testament says more. We must also read our New Testament and see what the New Testament says about our bodies. So then we might use them as God would have us to. And so tonight, I simply want to walk through the text briefly and make five observations from what Paul says about the resurrection of the body. And so when we're asked or when we think what is going to happen to me at life's end, we might appreciate that God says these bodies, I'm not through with them, but I've got great plans in store for them. Five points and then we'll extend the invitation. Number one is the concern that we all have. And so Paul starts out in verse 35 by posing this question in verse 35 when he says, But some will say, how are the dead raised and with what kind of bodies do they come? It's possible that this was a real objection by individuals in the Corinthian congregation, or perhaps Paul is just posing this question hypothetically. When you look at the response in verse 36, though, when he says, you fool, that which you sow is not brought to life unless it dies. It appears that this was a real oppositional voice in the church in Corinth. Someone was saying what's written in verse 35. But how are the dead raised and what kind of bodies do they come out with? If you believe the resurrection, would you explain to me how it happens? This sort of smart aleck response. If you've been in a classroom anywhere, you know that there are always these kinds of people. There are always people that think they know more than everybody else. And as Paul writes about the resurrection, Paul just envisions this person in the church in Corinth sort of raising their hand and saying, yeah, Paul, but by the way, if people are raised from the dead, what kind of bodies do they have? They weren't the first. In Acts 23 and verse 8, Paul was preaching. And you remember what he said? The Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection or spirits or angels, but the Pharisees, they confess both. You see, the Sadducees, they thought when you died, it was all over. In fact, on one occasion, they even tried to trap Jesus. In Matthew 22, you remember they come to Jesus and they say, essentially, a woman had seven husbands, no children and seven funerals. In the resurrection, Jesus, whose wife will she be? And Jesus said in Matthew 22, 29, You do err, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they're like the angels. Have you not read? He's the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus said their problem was they didn't know the Bible. They didn't know God's power. But people will rise from the dead. You can't teach this type of lesson anywhere without being blitzed with questions. When you talk about the resurrection, somebody says, Hiram, I've got a question. If these bodies are going to be raised, am I going to be 16 or 61 when I rise from the dead? And am I going to be stuck with the body that I have now or will I in the resurrection have the body that I've always wanted? Will I need braces in the resurrection body? And what about people that have been cremated? And what about people that have been lost at sea? And what about all of the various things that have happened? How can people be raised? It's a concern that we all have. And all of those questions must be answered with a question of its own, which is, is there anything too hard from the Lord? 
Genesis 18, 14, Jeremiah 32, 27. Is there anything too hard for God? You know, you read through the Bible and there are people that doubted God's power and his ability to do what he what he said he would perform. And they were often shown to be incorrect. Can a man have a child at 100 years old when his wife is 90? Genesis 21, 5 says Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Are you sure that if we go into Jericho and we don't lift a finger and we just walk around the walls like you say, they will fall and we will conquer our enemies by faith. The walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about for seven days. Hebrews 11 and verse 30. And are you sure we've never seen this before? Are you sure that a virgin can bring forth a son? She will bring forth a son. and You'll call his name Jesus and he'll save his people from their sins. You see, what the Bible is showing us is God's power is not limited. It's not shortened in any way. And so whatever God says he will perform, including the resurrection of these earthly bodies, he can and he will. I don't know how many of you have seen Toy Story, but if you have, you're familiar with Mr. Potato Head. And sometimes he gets his sort of his outfit mixed up and his eyes are where his ears should be and his ears are where his eyes should be. And things just aren't really put together like they should. Such chaos will not exist when God raises these bodies from the dead. And maybe you have this at your house. I believe every house has to have one, a junk drawer. Do you have that where you just throw stuff in it? Some people, their garage is this way. You go to somebody's house like that and you say, how on earth do you find anything here? And they say, it's my stuff. I know exactly where it is. God made these bodies. And in the resurrection, it's his stuff. And he'll know exactly where it is. The concern that we have about these earthly bodies and whether God will raise them from the dead is really no concern at all. Know you not that he's the Lord. He's our God. And is he that made us and not we ourselves. We're the sheep of his hand, the people of his pasture. Psalm 100 and verse three. And so I, like you, have been to funerals and I've seen loved ones put in the ground. I've seen individuals take the ashes of those that they love and throw them into the sea and across fields. But what Paul says to us in this passage is whatever you saw in that moment on that occasion, that is not the end. The body will be raised and not only raised, but Paul goes on to say the human body will be transformed. The first thing Paul addresses when he thinks about the resurrection of the body is the concern that every one of us has. Can God do this? Will God do this? How will it work? Now, here's number two. He says, consider some examples. Notice the text in verse 36 down through verse 41. Paul reasons really from two major arguments in creation to help us see the importance of the resurrection body and to keep the Corinthians faith and everyone who would ever read this passage to keep our faith rooted in what God has said in his word on this subject. And so in verse 36, he says, you fool. This is a person who is ignorant of God's ways and of God's power. It's the same idea in Psalm 14 and verse one. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The rich man in Luke chapter 12 and verse 20, Jesus says in the parable, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will all these things be which you have provided? It's this idea of the person who is ignorant of God's will, his power and his ways. And people who doubt the resurrection are in the same class of group of people that say there is no God. And those that are not rich toward God, Paul uses the same word here to say, don't doubt God's power. He uses an example from agriculture and he says, The bare kernel that you sow in the ground, it doesn't come forth to life unless it dies. And what you sow in the ground isn't what will be. You sow wheat or some other type of grain and then it springs forth with life more beautiful than that which you originally planted. Now, listen, Paul says you put a seed in the ground and the seed, quote unquote, dies and loses life. But as it springs forth, it's not a seed which emerges, but something far more glorious, something far better. And he says, so it'll be with the resurrection of the body. Paul says God is able to do this because he has the power to do it. 
Paul doesn't just say that. But notice what else he says in the text. He says there are different types of flesh. And he reasons backwards from creation. He says there's one kind of flesh for humans. There's another kind of flesh for animals and then another kind for fish or birds and then another kind for fish. What's Paul saying here? Paul is saying God has variety and God can bring us back. I don't know if you've seen Forrest Gump, but you remember when Forrest met Bubba for the first time on the bus. Bubba said, Forrest, I want to go in the shrimping business. And Forrest, he was a little perplexed. And Bubba said, wait, you can do a lot of stuff with shrimp. You can break, you can barbecue it and bake it, boil, saute it. He says, you know, there's shrimp kebabs and shrimp creole. There's shrimp pasta. There's shrimp salad and shrimp burgers, shrimp sandwiches, pepper shrimp and lemon shrimp. He says there's coconut shrimp. There's all types of things that you can do with shrimp. It's the same ingredient. It's the same piece of food. But there's a lot of things you can do. Paul says, now, listen, God's created one kind of flesh, but they're all different kinds. There's one kind for humans. There's another kind for animals. There's another kind for birds, another kind for fish. Paul's point in saying this about the resurrection is if you just go out and look at creation, surely you should know that the God that created the world is not limited in his power, but he can do amazing things. Then he talks about glory. There's one kind of glory for the sun, one for the moon, one for the stars. But stars differ from one another in glory. You know, the heavens tell us that God exists. Psalm 19 and verse one, the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. I was talking to the high school class this morning in Bible class about the fact that we can prove and we can know that God exists by looking at design in the universe. We can go out and see the stars, the sun and the moon, and we can realize they didn't hang themselves. Someone put them there. The heavens declare that God exists, but they declare more than that. According to Paul, the heavens declare that God doesn't just exist. The heavens declare what type of God exists, a glorious God and all of the glory that he put in the sun and the stars and in the moon. All of those variations, though there's similarity, there's also great difference. Paul says that's how it is with the human body. It is sown like a seed in the ground, but it eventually springs forth and our bodies will with a life far more glorious than anything we've ever known. And though we know this kind of flesh and blood, the kind of bodies that we'll have on the other side will be far different and far more advanced in glory. And so our finite understanding of how we currently live should not cloud our vision of what God will ultimately do for us in the resurrection. He will change our bodies. And if we would just look at creation and if we would just look at agriculture, Paul says, see that God's capable and that God's able to do it. Now, here's number three. He says there'll be a change from the fleshly to the spiritual. Would you notice how many contrasts Paul makes mention of in verses 42 down through 49 about the human body? He talks about our bodies being sown. When you die, the body is sown, perishable, is raised in perishable, sown in dishonor, raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and a spiritual body. As it is written, the first man, Adam, was a flesh and blood soul, but the last Adam was a life giving spirit. There's going to be a transformation. Right now, we wear the flesh and blood costumes that we were born into this world with. But when we experience the resurrection, there'll be a great change. Our bodies will be changed. They will be transformed and we'll go from the fleshly to the spiritual in a way that we haven't known. Paul wanted the Corinthians to appreciate that these bodies raggedy and broke down and that often fail us. They won't be the end. They're merely the beginning of what God has in store. Would you look at Philippians chapter three? Hold your hand in first Corinthians 15 and notice Philippians chapter three. 
Because in Paul's mind, this was one of the goals of the Christian life. Yes, to be in heaven with God, but also to know the resurrection, just like Jesus. In Philippians 3, 10 and verse and verse 10 and verse 11, Paul says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection being made like him when he died. If that by any means I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. And then in verse 21, he says, Jesus will come back and change our lowly body so that it will be fashioned like his glorious body, according to the working by which he's able to subdue all things to himself. Paul says there's going to be a great transformation. Our bodies will go from the flesh and blood that they now are to the spiritual bodies that will be able to inhabit eternity. You'll be changed. There'll be a great difference. The current bodies that we have, they'll wear out. They'll wear down. They all do. But the bodies will have eternity. They'll be forever changed. These bodies are limited in what they can do and what they can experience. Treat the body as best you can. Exercise it because you should. Eat healthy and take care of it. Get sleep and take your vitamins. But guess what's going to happen to this body? It's still going to fail you. The oldest woman in the world right now is a woman by the name of Kane Tanaka. She is 119 years old. And you know what's going to happen to her if the Lord delays his coming. Her genealogy will one day read just like yours and just like mine. She was such and such years old and she died. He was 79 years old and he died because these bodies were not meant for eternity. They won't last. And so they've got to be changed. We've got to go from the fleshly ultimately to the spiritual. And Paul says, that's what God is cooking up for you. And that's what God's cooking up for me. And so the resurrection of the body says these flesh and blood bodies that we have, they will experience a transformation. Nobody will miss it. In John 5, 28 and 29, Jesus says, don't marvel at this. The hour is coming in the which everyone that's in the grave will hear his voice and come out. Those that have done good to the resurrection of life, those that have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. No one will sleep through the divine alarm clock. God's going to get every one of us up and we'll be changed. Our bodies will be transformed. They'll be different. What will that be like? Somebody says we don't know all the details. In 1 John 3, 1 through 3, John says, we don't know what we'll be like just yet, but we know when he appears, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. And that has to be enough for us. The Bible says there will be a body that will be raised and it'll be changed, but we don't know all that there'll be. But we do know we will have a brand new body. Now, here's number four. Paul says we can conquer death with these bodies and comprehend the mystery of God. I don't know how many funerals I've done. But I don't think I've ever done one except we get to the gravesite and I read this passage from First Corinthians 15, 50 through 57. And if you've been to any funerals, you probably have heard the same passage read as well. When you get to this passage, Paul is getting to the real point of his whole sermon. Really, if you want to call First Corinthians 15 a sermon on the resurrection, he is driving home this point that death will be conquered. And though it's mysterious and what God's going to do with our body, Paul wants us to know something about it. He says, brethren. I I don't want you to be ignorant. I want you to know what's going to happen to these bodies and I want you to have full confidence in it. Behold, I show you a mystery. We will not all sleep. We'll all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we'll all be changed. This mortal must put on immortality. This corruption must put on incorruptible. And then when this mortal is put on incorruption and this corruptible is put on immortality, then will be brought to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. That's what's going to happen to our bodies when they're raised from the dead. And Paul wants us to comprehend that mystery. This is a sure thing. Nothing will stop the resurrection from happening. Somebody says, what about time? 
You know, I haven't seen him or her in a very long time. It seems like it's been centuries since I've seen mom or dad or aunt or aunt, uncle. I haven't seen him in a long time. Time won't stop him from getting up from the grave. God doesn't wear a watch. God doesn't look at a calendar. A day with the Lord is as a thousand years, a thousand years as a day. He will bring him up from the from the grave. Somebody says, what a tragedy. They never found the body. They don't know what happened to this person. This person died in war and their body was never brought home. Tragedy won't stop God. Psalm 147 and verse five says his power and his understanding is infinite. They'll be raised. And what about throbbing and aching and all of the pain that this body has? No cancer, no lupus, no tumors, no Alzheimer's, no dementia. None of those things will stop God from doing what he promises to do with the bodies. Paul says death will be swallowed up in victory as we live our lives. And it was prayed this way this morning. We think about all of the different things that are going on in our world. And death sort of marches around like the big bully that can't be stopped. But Paul says one day death will lose her power. Look at verse 54 and 55. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, verse 57, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. One day death will die. And that's because God outsmarted death. Jesus entered into the clutches of death to absorb it so that one day death will lose. He quotes two Old Testament passages here. The first one in verse 54 is from Isaiah 25 and verse 8. And then he quotes in verse 55, Hosea 13 and verse 14, and he fuses these two passages together as the human chorus that we all want to eventually sing and boast in death's face to say, you can't stop us from living now. What's said about Jesus will one day be said about you. He is not here. He is risen. She is not here. She's risen. As empty as his tomb is, one day yours will be as well. Paul says death is ultimately defeated in the resurrection. God has the last laugh and he has that because he will raise these bodies and ultimately transform them. Now, how does this help us live the Christian life? What does all of this information about the resurrection ultimately have to do with you going to work tomorrow or you going to school or being a mom or a dad or a Christian? Why do we care about the resurrection of the body? Would you look at verse 58? Familiar verse to us, but notice how Paul concludes this by saying we, because of the resurrection, should should be committed to an eternal cause. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmoved, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You see, people that know that one day these bodies are going to be raised and all that God has in store for them are willing to use these bodies now and wear them out in his service. People that know that God has another body in store for them, they give this body, Romans 12 and verse 1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Why would you do something like that? Because when this body has done all that it can in his service, he's got another one for me already set aside that will be transformed, that won't be worn down. That's why Paul could say, I haven't already attained it, I'm not already perfect, but I follow after it, that I may lay hold of that which is laid hold of me of Jesus Christ. I press toward the mark for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus, my Lord. If you really believe you'll be raised, you'll live this life in view of Jesus' resurrection, in view of your own, and you'll wear yourself out in his service. You see, what we believe is going to happen with the new bodies says everything about what we do with these current bodies. And how we use him to his good and his glory. Paul says, because you know there's going to be a resurrection, be steadfast. What does that mean? Put down roots. Be committed. Be unmoved. Don't be faithful today and unfaithful tomorrow. Be unmoved because the resurrection is sure. 
always abounding in the work of the Lord. What God has in store for us is so special. It's so magnificent. It's so amazing that we should abound in the work of the Lord. Paul's point there, abounding in the work of the Lord, drives home this idea. Wherever the line of mediocrity, this word for abounding means wherever the line of bare minimal Christianity is, you jump over it a hundred yards, always abound. And do you know why? Because your labor is not in vain in the Lord. What we do in these bodies, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, will be judged whether good or bad. We focus on the bad in that passage, but Paul says we'll stand before the judgment seat of God and give an account also for the good done in these bodies. People that use their bodies to serve Jesus Christ will be presented with a more glorious one in the resurrection. And Paul says with that in mind, I want you to use your life to serve Jesus Christ. You know, when people run distant races, there are sometimes three types of mentalities. There's the measured pace person that finishes at a good, steady pace. There's the person that just darts out and sprints and they die about 50 yards into the race. And then there's the person that just sort of trots along, not really running, but almost just shuffling their feet. And then when they see the finish line with 100 yards left, they run into a full speed sprint. And that's great. But they're normally in last place. They save too much for the end. Sometimes in our Christian lives, we're sort of just just sort of trotting along. We're saving it for some special occasion to really turn it on, to really rev up, to really go all in. And Paul says, don't save it. Don't wait. Be steadfast, unmoved, always abound. Don't worry that you're going to overdo it. Be worried about underdoing it. Abound in the work of the Lord, because only about Christianity can you say what Paul says in verse 58, that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. In November of last year, there were four and a half million people who were looking for a new job. That's the highest recorded number of that statistic since they started to log it in 2000. Warren Buffett, CEO of Berkshire and Hathaway, said, you know what? We can do something about this. If you want people to work for you and never quit, there are a few things you should always keep in mind. If you want people to work for you and never give up, you must give them a purpose. He says, if you want people to work for you and don't quit and don't look for another job, what you should do is create an environment of shared values. Put people around each other that think the same things are important, that care about the same things. He said, number three, make sure that you empower the leaders, the people that you put in charge, the people that are running your company. Make sure that they're empowered. And then number four, you look out among those individuals that are working and you promote the people with the values that exalt your company. You think about Christianity and Jesus doesn't want any of us to quit. And so what has he done? He's given us an eternal purpose in Christ Jesus. Ephesians three, nine through eleven. He's empowered leaders. Submit yourselves to the elders for they watch for your souls. And so you think about the shepherds over our congregation, not perfect men, but faithful men that love the Lord, love our souls and watch over them. He's empowered them and we're to submit to them. He says, you know what? I want to create an environment with like values. You all walk in the same judgment and be of the same mind. First Corinthians one and verse 10. And God will exalt the humble. He will put down those that are proud. First Peter five and verse six. If we have those mentalities among us. We won't quit. Paul says, don't give up. Be steadfast, unmovable, abound in the work of the Lord, because your labor and my labor is not in vain in the Lord. We shouldn't say about the resurrection of the body. It doesn't really matter to me. I just whatever, whatever God does, it doesn't matter to me. Paul says it does. Paul says it will change the way that you use this current body. What you think is going to happen to this body in the end 
will change the way you use it now. I don't know what your resurrection body is going to look like, but this is what I can assure you of. It will be glorious. If this is what God was able to do with us the first time, imagine what he'll do the second time around. This body will be put in a grave one day, but that is not the end. Paul says death is not the cessation of the body. It'll be raised and it'll be transformed and glorious, just like the Lord who went before us as the first fruits. But if we would experience that resurrection, we must first have what the Bible calls the first resurrection, which is submitting to Jesus, turning from sin, being buried in baptism. And the Bible calls the rising of the waters, rising from the waters of baptism, the first resurrection. And everybody who wants a glorious second resurrection must first enjoy the glorious first resurrection and baptism. So many people argue against doing this, but they don't realize that to fail to do this now is to be raised in judgment and torment in the days to come. If you're a Christian, take comfort and heart in what Paul says about the resurrection. What Jesus said to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth, and he could not be defied. He'll one day say about you and about me. We're all in different stages of life, and we may not think about our lives ending as much as we probably should. Somebody said the people that think about death the least need to think about it the most. And we may not think about it. But just remember, if you're a faithful Christian, the grave is not the end. We merely transition to exist. Our bodies will be raised and transformed because Jesus says, if you believe in me, you'll never really die. If we can pray for you or encourage you in any way tonight, if we can assist you in obeying the gospel, we're going to stand and sing this song to encourage us. Come now as together we stand and as we sing. While we-